Good morning, everyone. I'm really excited to be done school and here a little bit more permanently for the next two years. Uh, I will say, I, since I'll be here more often, I think I might need an upgrade on this step stool I've got back here so I can finally return the one that I borrowed from the nursery. I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians. Uh, sorry, I forgot which verse it was. 13, 8, uh, 8, 1 to 13. And it's going to be behind me on the screen. And if you want to take a look in your Bible, again, that's 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 13. Now, about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to the idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Now this series that we've been looking at, we're looking at what it means to be a church that grows together, a church that promotes unity, promotes community through struggle and sacrifice by looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Now, in chapter 8, which we just read, Paul begins to give one of his principles that will guide believers in making decisions about questionable areas of Christian life. And this principle being show, is being shown. It shows love for our Christian brothers and sisters is more important than our personal freedom that we have in Christ. Our love for our brothers and sisters is more important than our knowledge because knowledge without love is useless. It is the love for our Christian brothers and sisters that promotes that healthy spiritual community that we're striving for. So in this passage, it shows how we can show each other proper consideration 
that we need that we need love to build up each other more than we knowledge that puffs ourselves up. So we've already spent some time going through Paul's letters to the Corinthians. Let's do a quick short recap and look at some of the context of, of the letter and this, these verses specifically. So Corinth was an important and wealthy city. It was one that Paul had spent 18 months in during his second missionary journey where he established this church. And it was a church that seems to appear to have many issues. And now this letter that we are, have been reading, it's not actually his Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, uh, but it is the first letter that we have. Um, and it, it's one that's written in both a response to a report about the church and their, some of their problems, as well as a letter directly from the church in Corinth about issues that they were facing that they had written to Paul. So in the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses problems that were brought to his attention. And then starting in chapter 7, he then goes on to address the things about which you wrote me, meaning that he's now answering the questions that the church has directly for him. And he's directly responding to those issues that are being brought up in their letter to Paul. So the specific question in chapter 8 that we just read was whether or not it was allowed for Christians to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go to the grocery store, I've never thought to myself, I hope this chicken I'm buying wasn't used in a religious sacrifice. But in Corinth, a lot of the meat was available for people to buy and consume had been part of sacrifice to idols, different, different gods that people in the city were worshiped. So it was a very common thing for, to be happening to them. So it was a pretty big issue. And typically, part of the meat that was brought in was burned on the, on the altar, part was saved for the priests, parts were consumed by those who were making the sacrifice, and the rest that was left over was made available for people to purchase, uh, either to serve in the temples or sold throughout the city in the meat markets. It was definitely an efficient way to avoid waste, and it was very common. Every day, people were bringing in sacrifices to the temple. So while it's not a situation that we have directly faced, the Christians in Corinth, they faced it every day. So this is the setting in which the problem or that question that the people of Corinth have. And Paul is responding most likely to a debate within the church of whether or not they're allowed to buy and consume this meat that is so available to them. And the majority are most likely arguing that because they know that the other gods aren't real, there's nothing wrong with eating this meat. Another thing to remember is that Corinth is a Greek city. And therefore, wisdom specifically is held very high to them. In fact, they had become prideful in terms of their knowledge. The fact that Paul's responding to the question about whether or not they should eat this meat wasn't to prohibit it or allow it or agree with them or disagree with them, but instead he kind of moves around the issue and he goes straight to knowledge versus love, which really shows the bottom line of this verse. And it really shows where Paul thinks that the focus should be on. Not about whether it was right or not, but what is more important, knowledge or building up each other with love. So the Corinthians, they write to Paul and they say, we know that eating meat, it's okay. We know that these gods aren't real. It's totally fine. And Paul just responds with, 
Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So while knowledge itself isn't a bad thing, without love, it leans heavily towards arrogance. And when Paul says puffs up, he means inflated with pride. So think about a balloon filling up with air. It changes the shape of the balloon, and when you add too much air, it gets bigger and bigger, and then pop, it gets destroyed. So much like a balloon, pride can distort and damage and eventually destroy us. So that's what he's talking about when he says that knowledge puffs up. But then on the other hand, Paul speaks of love that builds up. So using that knowledge and service to others, through love, it blesses everyone, not just the other people, but it blesses the person using their knowledge in love. So using knowledge without love, it's showing, it shows, it's being used in a way that establishes superiority over other people, and it rarely ends in a good result. So the next two verses could be written as, a person who thinks they know everything probably doesn't. And Paul is talking about an arrogant type of knowledge, kind of like the person that we've all met, and maybe sometimes it's us, that thinks that they know everything and is unwilling to learn anything else which creates a barrier for more knowledge, true knowledge, for learning, for humility. But Paul follows this line up with, but whoever loves God is known by God. Again, this shift from knowledge towards love. The Corinthians, when, they're, when they wrote this letter to Paul, they're all about their knowledge. They know what's right. They know what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. But Paul is trying to shift that focus. He wants them to focus on love and not focus on their knowledge. So Paul argues that those who love God will be known by God. And being known by God, it's much more valuable than possessing knowledge. When we get to verses 4 to 6, Paul does agree with the Corinthians that we as Christians know that the gods behind the idols that are being sacrificed, they're not real. And he acknowledges that. We know that there is only one God. But then as we move to verses 7 to 8, he points out that not everyone has this knowledge. These gods seem very real to those who worship them. And therefore, this is something that as Christians we must take into account. And even though the Christians in Corinth were to, even if they were to eat the meat, it wouldn't affect their standing, but they still need to take all of these factors into consideration. As we move to verses 9 to 13, the last, the last few sections of this, this passage. So yes, Paul says eating meat, it's not actually a bad thing. But it still requires caution. And that non-Christians and newer Christians alike could be very confused by seeing these mature Christians eat meat at the temple. And maybe they would think that these mature Christians were engaging in idol worship causing them to think that maybe worshiping Jesus and other gods, totally okay. Or another possibility is that they might see this mature Christian eating meat that was known to be from a sacrifice to an idol, and they might think them a hypocrite, therefore not wanting anything more to do with the church. Either way, it causes confusion, and it causes people to, to be separated from the church, to be pushed away. So it causes that person who Jesus died for to be destroyed by your knowledge. Paul really emphasized this huge consequence for something seemingly so small. 
Paul is saying here, don't be that person. Don't be a stumbling block for others. Don't let your freedom or liberty cause someone else to fall. It isn't about thinking less of you because of what they see you doing, but it's about thinking less of Christ because of them following your example. So it's just about being aware of the people around you. In the final verse, Paul writes how he would live out this principle of love over knowledge. So he gives his own example. He knows that there's no sin in eating the sacrificed meat. But instead of trying to prove that to everyone, that he has the knowledge that he knows better, Paul is more concerned about loving his neighbor and not being a stumbling block for them. So he would rather limit his freedom that he has than potentially harm someone. So while I said that this specific issue, especially surrounding the eating meats from idols, it's, it's not really something that we have to deal with. But like most things in scripture, there are underlying themes or principles that can help us in our own context today. So the first is that danger of knowledge. Knowledge can be a good thing. But often when there is an argument, we tend to think that we have the right knowledge and the other person is foolish. Our prideful knowledge leads us to look down or condemn them. But in this scripture, Paul shows us that when we combine our knowledge with, the lo with love in order to find answers to disputes like the one about food sacrifices to idols, this is the much better option. So we need to be able to combine our knowledge with our love for others. And we need to prioritize our love for others over what we know to be right. Secondly, it helps us navigate those gray areas. So often times, most things are more complicated than, yes, it's right, no, it's wrong. Case in point in this scripture, it's much more complicated. So what's okay for one person may be wrong for someone else. What is okay in one situation may not be okay in a different situation. There are many gray areas in the Christian life that we need to learn how to navigate with love and kindness and concern for others in order to build up our community, to have a healthy church. So in this passage, Paul shows a principle that helps believers make decisions about questionable areas or gray areas in Christian church. And I could come up with a huge list. I mean, is it right for Christians to watch TV shows or movies with swearing and violence? Should a believer drink alcohol? Should you allow your children or teenagers to play violent video games? Is it okay for a believer to play the lottery or gamble? To what extent should we be involved in politics? How should we view debt? Is it okay to get tattoos or piercings? I'm sure you can guess my view on that one. <laughs> I could go on and on. And some of these are a little bit more trivial than others and some of them are more important to other people than, and less important to more people. But let's, let's look at the drinking alcohol examples, just because it's a little bit more simple to get this idea from. So on one hand, you have Christians that believe that they should not drink alcohol at all, and that to do so is wrong. And on the second hand, you have Christians that feel like it's perfectly fine to drink alcohol. Now, if we look to scripture, there's actually nothing that teaches that we should not drink. Alcohol was a really normal part of the culture that Jesus lived in, and the very fact that his first miracle was to transform water into wine. Though we do have scripture in Ephesians that tells us not to get drunk on wine. So 
if we look solely at scripture without taking anything else into, into consideration, we can determine that alcohol is fine. It's, it's okay. The Bible doesn't say you shouldn't do it, so it's fine. But what if there's people in our church or around us that have struggled with addiction to alcohol? It's one of the reasons that we don't serve wine in communion. We do, church. We do uh, juice so that we don't create stumbling blocks for people. So if we take this principle that Paul outlines of knowledge balanced by love or holding love above your knowledge, and you're a Christian who does drink alcohol, and a, known, and a believer that you know and that is close to struggles with alcohol, out of love for them, you could choose not to drink. You could choose not to drink around them or talk about drinking with them. So it's all about reading that context. And yes, you know that scripture doesn't specifically say anything about it, but what is going to build up your community more? Giving up a little bit on that liberty that you have or sacrificing something that you think is fine to build somebody else up, to love somebody else, to not be a stumbling block for them. And there are many other examples that we can talk about. But the thing is, is that it's not a list of what to do and what not to do. It's not just about head knowledge and knowing what is right and what is wrong. It's about coming to every single situation with love. By assessing the context, the situation, and asking oneself, am I promoting love and building up my neighbor, or am I more focused on my pride and knowing that I am right? So the questions we as Christians shouldn't be asking is, am I allowed to do this? But instead, is this a good thing to do? It's about switching that, that thought of just thinking of oneself and thinking more in community, thinking outside of yourself, thinking of other. So even if all the things that we're allowed to do, and we want to do things that are, but we want to do things that are beneficial, we want to do things that build up the community and bring glory to God, so we can take our knowledge of what's acceptable or unacceptable, and we can interpret it through our love for people that are influenced by us. So again, I say I can't give a list of what to do and not to do. It's not black and white. Because those type of all these types of things, especially these gray areas, they're dependent on the context and situation. So it's the easy thing to give a list of, of things we should do and things we shouldn't, and those black and white it's a lot harder to take these principles and bring them into every context and know that we have that, that flexibility, that things are different in different contexts, in different situations, in different people. So what may be okay at one time may not be okay at another time. I think the point being that if we hold love over knowledge, this allows us to have the flexibility to come to every situation seeking what is best for those around us. It allows us to build up our community and to avoid becoming stumbling blocks for others and being puffed up by our own knowledge. Let's take a minute and come before God in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and that we can dig into it and learn from it. Help us in the coming days and weeks put this principle of knowledge combined with love into practice. 
Help us to remember to behave in a way that builds others up with love as we seek to build a community of unity. Guide us to navigate all the messy areas of our lives and come to each situation with love instead of arrogant knowledge. Help us to not become stumbling blocks for others that would distance them from you, but instead be the ones that build people up to help them become closer to you, Lord. In all this we pray. Amen.